next set of papers focused on breast cancer and were reviewed by Dr. Harold Burstein, beginning with two presentations that attracted considerable media attention and focused on the controversial issue of tamoxifen metabolism. CYP2D6 should be something people are reading about, but unfortunately, these particular presentations fell way short of people's expectations. CYP2D6, as the audience may have heard, is the enzyme that converts tamoxifen to its active metabolite, endoxifen. And there have been a number of retrospective studies, most notably from the Mayo Clinic investigators, which have suggested that women who have deficiencies in CYP2D6, either because they have a hereditary deficiency in enzyme metabolism or because they're taking another drug that competes for the enzyme, do not metabolize tamoxifen as well and seem to do less well in clinical trials. Accordingly, these women also have fewer symptoms of tamoxifen in some of the retrospective work that's been done. So there's an emerging story here. There have been several threads coming together. The story is picking up steam and resonance, and we and others are beginning some clinical trials to look at this in more detail. What we saw reported on at ASCO were two efforts to look at population registries, large databases from pharmaceutical houses or from federal resources or other population-based registries like Medco Healthcare where patients were assigned to tamoxifen therapy and were then tracked over time. And there were efforts to look at whether or not they were receiving a concurrent drug that might inhibit CYP2D6 by the first group and to see how well that predicted clinical outcomes. Unfortunately, there were a variety of methodological problems that really interfered with our ability to draw much from these trials. The data on the duration of drug therapy with these concomitant inhibitors was not very complete. The data on compliance with tamoxifen were not very complete. There were questions raised from the audience in particular about the thoroughness of the tracking of disease recurrence based on how they had scored the disease links and codes. And were these mainly antidepressants or principally antidepressants. The class of drugs that's gotten most notoriety for this have been some of the SSRIs, such as fluoxetine, paroxetine, and bupropion, which is not an SSRI, but is another antidepressant. So I think that there is momentum gaining behind the CYP2D6 study, but these particular abstracts were not very compelling pieces of data. So you think that the conclusion that there's a greater risk of breast cancer recurrence in patients who are getting tamoxifen from these other drugs, there's really not the data to support it? Well, these abstracts didn't clinch the deal for me, but a lot of other work has suggested that there is a pharmacologic interaction between some of these other SSRIs and tamoxifen. So as a style point now in my practice, I try to avoid giving both sets of drugs. So if the woman's on tamoxifen and she needs an SSRI, I would use a drug such as venlafaxine, which is not metabolized by CYP2D6, and I would try and avoid fluoxetine and paroxetine and bupropion. Conversely, if a woman's already on one of those antidepressants and is clearly benefiting from them, then as an option, I might choose a different antiestrogen from tamoxifen, such as an aromatase inhibitor. What about the other paper that was reported on CYP2D6 looking at adherence to tamoxifen? Yeah, so again, there were some really profound methodologic challenges to this because they are looking at drug registry data to try and gauge adherence. And adherence, of course, is complicated because it's a function of many things, socio-demographics, patient preferences, patient symptoms, economics. And again, when you really teased apart the methods here, it was hard to see a take-home message. What was the message they were trying to make? The message they were trying to make was that 
CYP2D6 was a relatively potent predictor of adherence and that patients who were not adherent with tamoxifen or who were using drugs that interfered with CYP2D6 had different patterns of adherence. And again, I think it's just hard to really see that emerging strongly from this presentation. So you would assume, though, that people who had high levels of CYP2D6 would have less symptoms? Historically, the argument has been that if you have more CYP2D6 or your normal metabolizer, that you make more endoxifen and therefore you are at greater risk for symptoms. The confounders here also include the fact that women who are on antidepressants or mood stabilizers may have different issues with regard to adherence and symptomatology than women who are not, and that might be irrespective of CYP2D6. So you mentioned that you're doing some work on this and others are. What do we need to do to actually get the answer here? Well, I think that one of the things we need to do is to prospectively demonstrate that we can, in a real-time fashion, check a patient's CYP2D6 pharmacogenomic profile, measure endoxifen, and make rational treatment recommendations to a patient. So much of the literature has focused on, for instance, the STAR4 mutation, which is one allele in CYP2D6. It's the most commonly mutated allele in Caucasians of Northern European ancestry. But there actually are 40 or more variants of CYP2D6. The relationship between those variants and endoxifen metabolism levels from tamoxifen and finally on risk of recurrence are not one-to-one-to-one. In fact, it's rather complicated. And because everybody has two of these genes, one from mom and one from dad, there's a lot of human variation out there. So we need a demonstration project to show that you can take a large number of patients, test these things, make rational decisions with a patient. And we actually and others are embarking on those kinds of prospective strategies. So another substance and family of substances that we heard a lot about at ASCA, and this time I think really exciting stuff, relates to the PARP inhibitors. There was a meeting plenary presentation by Joyce O'Shaughnessy looking at one PARP1 inhibitor in triple negative breast cancer, and then another presentation looking at another PARP inhibitor, I guess PARP1 and 2, in BRCA-deficient breast cancer. And there was actually also a paper with that same substance looking at BRCA-positive ovarian cancer. But what about the two breast papers? Well, this was exciting stuff. And I think for those of us who are at ASCIO and were very interested in the breast cancer docket, these really were the standout presentations because it was probably the arrival on the scene of a very potent new class of drugs. I can only imagine what it's like to be in the theater the first time a famous opera singer makes their appearance or some other fantastic performer arrives on the scene and you go, wow, I was there. And this was the case with the PARP inhibitors and breast cancer. So let me just tell you a little bit about why these drugs were of interest, and then we'll dive into the data. The buzzword for the meeting in breast cancer was synthetic lethality, synthetic lethality. That is actually a very old concept, it turns out, from yeast genetics, where it turns out if you have one process, say metabolism of a sugar or a nucleotide or something like that, it may have two biochemical pathways that are effective at metabolizing the product. If the yeast strain or the bacterial strain is deficient in one of those pathways and you then knock out the other one by a drug therapy or by back mutation, you then have this double pathway whammy and the cell cannot get its active metabolite the way it needs to. That has been called synthetic lethality. And it's been recognized for over a decade that that would be a very powerful strategy for identifying cancer drugs, but there hadn't been any demonstrations of it. 
Why is this relevant to thinking about the PARP inhibitors? Well, it turns out that in most normal cells, there are several ways that they can repair DNA. DNA repair being such an essential process within a normal cell. And one of those pathways is dependent on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. And the other is dependent on this very interesting enzyme complex called PARP, which stands for poly-ADP ribose polymerase. There are multiple PARPs and there are multiple PARP inhibitors. But to go back to synthetic lethality, if you then imagine a cancer cell which is dependent on either the BRCA1-2 pathway or on the PARP-driven pathway for DNA repair, if you knocked out both of those pathways, all of a sudden you might deliver a lethal hit to the cancer cell. So that background is what led to two sets of trials in treating breast cancer. There were two different PARP inhibitors used. Olaparib was studied in patients who had BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. So this was a multicenter, open-label, phase 2 trial led by investigators around the world, presented by Dr. Tut from Britain, where they took women who had metastatic breast cancer linked to BRCA1 or BRCA2 deficiency. They gave them the drug at one of two different doses, 100 milligrams twice a day or 400 milligrams twice a day. And they showed substantial clinical activity with a response rate on the order of 35 to 40 percent in the higher dose level. And these drugs as a class are very well tolerated. There is some minor degree of nausea and fatigue, but it has none of the familiar side effects of chemotherapy like alopecia or low blood counts or other problems. So that was an elegant demonstration of some beautifully scientifically driven clinical ideas. You take this group of women with BRCA1 or 2 mutations, you knock out their other DNA repair pathway with a PARP inhibitor, and you see robust clinical activity even in women who'd had lots of prior chemotherapy. We had participated in that trial, and we've had a couple of patients with that drug, and it's very exciting to see that work come to fruition. The second trial was a randomized phase two study looking at a different PARP inhibitor from a company called BIPAR, which was about three to four weeks before the meeting bought by Sanofi Aventis. And their drug is called BSI-201. And investigators for this trial led by Joyce O'Shaughnessy, who you mentioned earlier, took women who had so-called triple negative breast cancer, tumors lacking ER, PR, and HER2, and randomly assigned them to chemotherapy alone or chemotherapy plus the PARP inhibitor. Why did they choose triple negative breast cancer? Well, for a variety of reasons. One is that triple negative tumors often have a molecular signature that is sort of like that that you see, particularly in the BRCA1-associated breast cancers. The BRCA1-associated tumors tend to be triple negative as well. Secondly, triple negative tumors are tumors that have lots of abnormal DNA. We know from other chromosomal studies that have been done that triple negative tumors are far more likely to have major chunks of DNA rearrangement problems or missing chunks of DNA. So there was this clinical suggestion that they would be susceptible to PARP-based therapy. And of course, it is a group of patients for whom we do not have very effective targeted therapies. They're not candidates for endocrine therapy or trastuzumab or other anti-HER2 therapies. So they did a study with about 120 patients given either gemcitabine plus carboplatin chemotherapy, drugs chosen mostly empirically, though both of them are DNA damaging agents. And those drugs were given with or without the addition of their PARP inhibitor, BSI-201, which is an intravenous drug. The AstraZeneca Kudos product is an oral drug taken twice a day. BSI-201 is an intravenous drug. It was given four times every two weeks around the doses of the chemotherapy. 
And what these investigators reported was an improvement in multiple important clinical endpoints. So they showed that there was a greater response rate when you added the PARP inhibitor to the chemotherapy, and that translated to an improvement in time to progression, median progression going from around three months to around seven months. And most exciting, they showed that there was an improvement in overall survival going from around five and a half or six months out to nine months for overall survival with the addition of the PARP inhibitor drug. And you mentioned the response rate. I mean, it went from almost triple, 21 to 60-something percent. Yeah, it was a robust difference. And these data were really exciting for several reasons. I mean, one is it's obviously a new class of drugs. Second is it's a triple negative breast cancer population, which have been tough patients to treat in the metastatic setting. We're all familiar with that. Third is there was a survival difference. And, you know, we've gotten to the point where we no longer even expect survival differences as major endpoints in metastatic breast cancer trials because people say, oh, these women are candidates for so many lines of therapy, it's hard to see a survival difference. And many of our recently approved biological therapies have never shown survival difference, and yet this drug did in this study. Now, let's say the obvious. This was an open-label, small, phase two randomized trial. It requires phase three validation. The company is mounting a multi-center phase three study to look at this question again, and that should be opening around the country at the end of the summer. But this was really stuff that you sort of wanted to go home and look into and try and find trials built around PARP inhibitors for patients who have this disease. What about the presentation by Chuck Vogel, another one looking at TDM1? So TDM1 is a derivative of trastuzumab linked to a chemotherapy moiety called DM1. What Dr. Vogel presented was really an update of data that we saw at San Antonio and saw last year at ASCO, which is that in open-label phase two studies, this drug has robust activity in trastuzumab-treated breast cancer. So this is a phase two study of a little more than 100 women, and they've demonstrated a response rate on the order of 35 or 40 percent. These are durable, dramatic responses. We and others have participated in these clinical trials, and this is clearly an exciting drug for trastuzumab-resistant disease. It is rapidly being moved forward into earlier lines of metastatic treatment and even discussions ongoing now in the adjuvant setting already. What about the paper looking at another anti-HER2 strategy, pertuzumab? So pertuzumab is a different monoclonal antibody than trastuzumab. Both bind to HER2, but pertuzumab, which is marketed as Omnitarg, binds to a portion of the HER2 molecule that interacts with HER3. So it prevents the interactions between HER2 and HER3 that are thought to be clinically important. What these investigators did from Spain this is Jose Baselga's group principally, is they updated us on ongoing phase two work with this drug in trastuzumab-treated breast cancer patients. And previously, they have shown a response rate on the order of 15 to 20% with this drug in women who'd previously had trastuzumab-based therapy. There was one small, fascinating little nugget in this presentation that Dr. Cortez made on behalf of his colleagues. So they've done multiple studies. They've shown there's about a 15 to 20% response rate of the drug when you give it in continuation with trastuzumab. When you stop trastuzumab, the drug seems to have less activity. So you learned a little bit there, which is that maybe you should be giving both trastuzumab and pertuzumab. What was kind of clever was they took patients, and there were only a handful. I think there were literally like eight of these patients, maybe 10. But they took patients who previously had trastuzumab and progressed, who were then given pertuzumab-based therapy as monotherapy and again progressed. And then they gave them both drugs, trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, and they saw responses. And that suggests that this combination of drugs really might overcome whatever resistance there is to single-agent drug therapy. And I think that that idea will inform the ongoing clinical trials work with pertuzumab. 
How about the much-anticipated presentation on the Ribbon 1 study Nick Robert presented? So Ribbon 1 is now the fourth trial we have seen in metastatic breast cancer looking at chemotherapy with or without the addition of bevacizumab. And just to bring the audience up to speed, the three previous trials were a study of capecitabine plus or minus bevacizumab in women previously treated with anthracyclines and taxanes. That showed no major difference in progression-free survival, a modest difference in response rate. Then there were the data from ECOG 2100, weekly paclitaxel plus or minus bevacizumab that Kathy Miller reported and published. And in that study of first-line chemotherapy, the median time to progression improved from 6 to 12 months or so with the addition of bevacizumab. And that study is what led to FDA approval of the drug. There has never been a survival difference seen with either of those trials. About a year ago at ASCO, we saw the data from the Avado trial. That was a study of docetaxel with or without the addition of bevacizumab. It actually looked at two different doses of bevacizumab. There was a statistically significantly different improvement in PFS from adding bevacizumab to docetaxel. It went from about six or seven months to about eight, eight and a half months with the addition of the drug. But quantitatively, that was a very different result than people had seen in ECOG 2100. So the fourth trial is the Ribbon trial, Ribbon 1, which was a first-line treatment study really designed to look at whether other chemotherapy options besides paclitaxel would be useful for incorporating with bevacizumab. And in this study, patients and their doctors had the option of which chemotherapy product they would get. They could get either capecitabine or an anthracycline-based regimen like AC or docetaxel or NAB paclitaxel. And the analyses compared the capecitabine-treated group versus all the other flavors of chemotherapy, each of those arms with or without the addition of bevacizumab. And what the investigators reported was that, as has been seen in the past, there was a significant improvement in response rate. And as has been seen in the past, there was a statistically significant difference in progression-free survival. In the capecitabine arm, the median progression went from six months to about eight and a half months. In the taxane-based arm, the median difference in progression went from eight months to nine months. So the p-value here was statistically significant in these various analyses. But looking at these visually, I think that this much more was reminiscent of the Avado treatment result than it was of the ECOG 2100 result. So here's your back-of-the-envelope meta-analysis for bevacizumab trials now in breast cancer. Four studies, one flatly negative, one overtly positive. Those are the ends of the spectrum. The two more recent studies, including Ribbon 1, which is the largest study done to date, statistically significant difference but perhaps not that much clinically significant difference in progression-free survival, improvements on the order of a month or two, very much different than we had seen with ECOG 2100. It's so hard sometimes for clinicians to look at data like this, because another number I saw in there was the hazard ratio for recurrence with capecitabine-bev, which was 31%, which sounds... Yeah, the hazard ratios are about 0.7. So, I mean, that sort of sounds better than what you just said, but I don't know which one is the real reflection. Well, I think the honest truth is that We've now treated a couple thousand patients on clinical trials of chemo alone or chemo plus BEV with metastatic breast cancer. And it's probably the case that adding bevacizumab modestly improves progression-free survival. So far, there's no signal that it improves overall survival. And I think that this establishes bevacizumab-based treatment as an option for first-line metastatic breast cancer. 
and it may help some patients. What we all wish we had were better markers to suggest which patients really benefited from this treatment. Brian Schneider and his group at Indiana are working on, again, pharmacogenomic variants that might predict outcome. Perhaps the incidence of hypertension predicts the benefit. That's been reported by a couple of investigators. But at the same time, this drug is not a home run. And I think that most of us don't want to be yoked to the idea of first-line chemotherapy plus bevacizumab has to be the standard for everybody forever and ever and ever, because I just don't think there's enough oomph to those differences that we want to sort of do that. What about the paper looking at a phase two trial of nabpaclitaxel and three different dosing schedules with bevacizumab? That combination is one of three combinations that's being studied right now in the metastatic setting in the cooperative study, the other two being ixabibulone and just paclitaxel. What about this paper? So this was a randomized phase two study that was the preliminary work to that. It was principally done by investigators at Memorial. It was presented by Allison Conlin from Portland, Oregon. They compared NAB paclitaxel 260 milligrams every three weeks versus 260 milligrams every two weeks with filgrastim support versus 130 milligrams per meter square on a weekly schedule. As you said, everybody got bevacizumab. Two important toxicity lessons. The first is that it was not feasible to give every two-week NAB paclitaxel at 260 milligram per meter square. They closed that arm because of a variety of nonspecific toxicities, but mostly just the patients weren't tolerating it. The second concerning finding was a profound rate of neuropathy with the treatment doses that we just mentioned. In fact, somewhere between 35 and 40% of patients were developing grade 3 neuropathy with NAB paclitaxel-based therapy. And it's not because they were getting so much of a longer duration of treatment. The durations of treatment look very similar to previous studies of bevacizumab-based treatment. So actually, all of these arms really look quite toxic. And I think that for ordinary practice, the standard recommendations would be combinations that we know more about, such as paclitaxel plus bevacizumab, if one is to do that approach. And obviously, there is CALGB 40503, the trial from Hope Rugo and the CLGB that you mentioned, which compares weekly paclitaxel, weekly NAB paclitaxel, and weekly ixabepilone, all paired with bevacizumab to see which is the most effective strategy. And what's the dose and schedule of NAB in that? That dose is 120 to 130 milligram per meter square. And so I think there are concerns that that just may be too toxic a dose based on neuropathy, but we'll have to see how that plays out. There were a couple of papers that were kind of follow-ups to some information that was presented at San Antonio looking at letrozole plus lapatinib. Can you talk about those two studies? Yeah, so there have been a couple of reports in the past year or two on looking at lapatinib-based therapy. One study which Steve Johnston presented was the endocrine treatment study of letrozole with or without the addition of lapatinib. And then there was a similar set of work where they've looked actually chemotherapy of paclitaxel plus or minus lapatinib. And what these studies have principally shown is that Overall, there's a modest, essentially negligible benefit of adding lapatinib therapy. If you focus on the HER2-positive subset of cases, well, then yes, it looks like adding lapatinib does have clinical resonance. It improves time to progression and response rates in comparison to chemotherapy alone or endocrine therapy alone. So one of the interesting things that Johnston reported at San Antonio last December was perhaps this suggestion that in women who, again, were more endocrine resistant with their tumors, that perhaps because they had quantifiably lower levels of estrogen receptor, that you could enhance their sensitivity to endocrine therapy by adding lapatinib. So what they did was a retrospective subset analysis of their letrozole plus minus lapatinib study, focusing on those women with ER-positive HER2 
negative, but lower levels of ER expression. And perhaps there was this signal that you might tease out a little bit more benefit with the addition of the dual kinase inhibitor lopatinib. Again, I think these differences were modest. I think it's provocative work, but it's not clear that this is a way to select patients for whether to give them lopatinib or not. What about the paper looking at higher dose fulvestrin, specifically 500 milligrams? So fulvestrant, as people know, is the injectable antiestrogen that leads to estrogen receptor degradation. It's usually given monthly at a dose of 250 milligrams intramuscularly. There's been interest in looking at the pharmacology because if you actually do those doses, it takes three to four months to really get up to high levels. And so people have played with loading doses. And in the study that was reported by Steve Cum and others, they looked at the 500 milligram dose as a way to enhance activity. So this was a small open label phase two study. They demonstrated that people tolerate the 500 milligram dose, though it requires two injections instead of one every month. And it's worth noting that these investigators also gave 500 milligrams on day 15 in that first month. Compared to historical experiences, they saw a better than you would have imagined outcome. That is to say, the time to progression was 13 months, which is pretty good compared to previous work with fulvestrant, and the response rate was modestly better than you might have expected compared to previous work with fulvestrant. The actual response rate was about 30%. So again, I think that this is provocative work, but it certainly doesn't mean that we should routinely be giving that dose. What we need are studies that directly compare the five. 100-milligram dosing versus the 250. Now, there was a paper in San Antonio that Matt Ellis presented, which was a randomized phase two against anastrozole using a higher-dose regimen. It's kind of similar to this, and there it looked like they had greater efficacy. Yeah, so fulvestrin is a drug where we're still seemingly trying to find out how to use it best. And, you know, I think it's a very reasonable option in women who have metastatic breast cancer, I've been leading a study with CLGB looking at fulvestrant with or without lapatinib, and we've seen many patients do well in that treatment. I actually had occasion recently in assembling a different talk to look at some of the literature on fulvestrant combined with aromatase inhibitors. Right. And that's actually a very provocative preclinical literature. And there are trials, most notably the SOFIA, S-O-F-E-A trial that is being done in the UK and elsewhere, where people are getting aromatase inhibitor therapy alone versus aromatase inhibitors plus fulvestrant for metastatic disease. And actually... I came away from rereading those papers thinking that's a very important set of studies. I hope we get some news from them soon. Yeah, John Robertson's been talking about that for a long time. Yeah, and if you go to Angela Brody's models of endocrine therapy, which have been very powerful at predicting benefits of tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors and combinations and sequences of those drugs, in her systems, combining an AI with fulvestrant gives really magnificent tumor control. So those are things to keep an eye on. So I think there's also a U.S. study looking at a similar There's There are several. So there's a SWOG trial that has closing to accrual this summer, SWOG 0226, which again is an AI plus or minus the combination of fulvestrant. And then Jenny Chang at Baylor has been doing a preoperative study of AI alone versus AI plus fulvestrant. And as I say, I had occasion to pull those papers and studies recently for a talk I was assembling on endocrine therapy, and they really look very provocative. I'm looking forward to seeing what those data show. I'm still holding out hope for the higher dose also. I was kind of impressed by Matt Ellis's data, and I think it's being looked at in a phase three study. Well, you know, one of the things that happened in the marketplace is fulvestrant became a drug of third or fourth line endocrine therapy. Right. And so the typical time of progression is only a few months. And when you look at the pharmacology, it actually takes that long to really get to therapeutic doses. Whether 
pumping those therapeutic doses up earlier will really change that natural history is what's unclear.